السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين This is a really, a, really a big honor for us to be here today, mashallah, on uh, the F1 weekend, right? It's an F1 weekend, but mashallah, we have uh, so many people come here today to get together to study the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through this beautiful surah. What makes this surah really... Uh, Amazing is that it's one of those surahs that we usually read every which day? Every Friday, right? We're supposed to read the surah. But the tragedy is that we've been reading it for such a long time without really understanding the great, amazing meanings of the surah. And so my attempt today, inshallah, it's a really humble attempt, a small attempt to understand some of the beautiful gems of this wonderful surah and to understand why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to read this surah, as the Prophet ﷺ had told us, every week. Why is it a surah that we have to read over and over and over again? What's so profound about its meanings? And specifically, I wanted to talk about the story of the youth of the cave for a reason. Because this is one of the first, it's the first story of the four stories. You guys know this, right? How many stories are in Surah Al-Kahf? Four, I can't hear you. Four, right? So the first one is the story of the youth of the cave. And so that's going to be the focus of, of today's uh, talk, inshallah. And, um, you know, Allah, it's not a coincidence that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has actually named this surah after the, the youth of the cave, right? He called it Surah Al-Kahf. He didn't call it any other uh, surah name based on the other stories, right? He chose the name of the surah to basically be linked with the story of the youth of the cave. And so what I want to do is, um, at the beginning, just to give you a brief background and preview of the surah itself. It's very important for us to understand the background of the surah, why was it revealed, what was the context of revelation. So basically what happened is, this was revealed at a time in Mecca, later Meccan period basically. This was late Meccan period, and what was happening in Mecca in late Meccan period, the Sahaba and the Prophet ﷺ were being persecuted by the Quraysh. And they, they had enemies all over, you know, basically trying to discredit the message of the Prophet ﷺ. Some of, some of the Sahaba were actually killed. And the Prophet ﷺ was reaching a stage where he, his life was also threatened, wasn't it? And that's why he had to do hijrah. So this surah was revealed before hijrah. At times where things were really, really fierce and kind of really intense. And so the Quraysh, what they did was they went to the Jewish rabbis of Medina and ask them for three really, really tough questions that if they asked the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ would be stuck, he wouldn't know how to answer those uh, questions. And this would be a weapon for the Quraysh against the Prophet ﷺ to discredit his message. Okay? So they go to these rabbis and the, and the rabbis basically tell them, ask Muhammad, we say ﷺ, they don't say, ask him three questions. Okay? Question number one was ask him about the youth who disappeared for a very, very long time and they had a really amazing story. That's it, okay? That's question number one. Then they told him, then the rabbis told the Quraysh, ask him about the man who traveled east and west. Which story is that about? Dhul Qarnayn, exactly. And the third question was, ask 
him about the ruh, which is the, the soul or the spirit. There's really no translation for it. The ruh itself, okay? So these are the three questions. And so the Quraysh, they come back to Mecca and they ask the Prophet ﷺ these three questions. And the Prophet ﷺ says, I'll tell you tomorrow. What does the Prophet ﷺ forget to say? Insha'Allah. Okay, and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a, as a kind of like, um, you know, to give some ta'deeb or to give the Prophet ﷺ some, some good mannerism lessons, delays the answer for about, you know, the, the Mufassirun say 15 days. So imagine, the Prophet ﷺ told the Quraysh, I'm going to give you the answer in 24 hours. The, the wahi is delayed for two weeks. And so you know, there's you know, all this talk around in Medina that, you know what, the Prophet ﷺ, he has no answers, he's stuck. Yes, we finally got him. We finally managed to kind of corner the Prophet ﷺ into you know, exposing the fact that he is not really a messenger. And so then the surah is revealed as an answer to these three questions. And of course, uh, you know, everyone's amazed at this. So this is the background of the, the surah's context of, of revelation itself. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the overall layout of the surah. Very important for us to understand the overall layout. So the surah actually starts off with a small introductory khutbah, you can call it. Like a khutbah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? And then there's section one, which is the first story. Whose story is it? The story of the... Youth of the cave, okay, so that's story number one. Then there's a second khutbah, a commentary on the story of the youth of the cave, and then the second story starts, which is the story of the man who had two gardens, the really, really rich, super wealthy man, okay, who basically thought that his wealth was everything and he had no concern for akhirah. That's the second story. After that, there's another uh, third khutbah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commenting. And by the way, this khutbah is, is really, really long. Okay? It's a long khutbah, this one. After that, there's two consecutive stories. The third story of the surah is the story of Musa alayhi salam. And the fourth one is the story of Dhul Qarnayn. Okay? And then at the end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes with a final khutbah on the, the, all the overall lessons of the surah itself. Okay? So this is the overall context of the surah. Uh, four stories with some mini khutbahs in between. <coughs> so inshallah, we're, we're going to be focusing for today's talk on the youth of the cave. Now, um, I wanted to give you the overall kind of lesson right from the beginning, okay? The overall theme that connects these surahs together is that all these four stories talk about different types of trials that we go through, different types of tests, tribulations, we call them fitna in Arabic and Urdu also, right? Fitna, it's a very common word. And so, these are four types of fitnas. The first one being the fitna of religion, right? I mean, these youth, they basically had to be tested with their deen, with their religion. They were living in times where the, the king was basically someone who believed in other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was a disbeliever. He was someone who associated partners with Allah. And these youth... They were believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as being the one. They were people of Tawheed. Okay? Everyone in society was basically following the crowd. And the crowd was basically following what the king had to, had to believe. But these were the small minority who decided, no, 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 we're going to stand up for the truth. And so they were tested with their deen. The second story is about the man with two gardens. Now, what do we know about the man with two gardens? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala extensively describes to us how amazing this guy's gardens were. Right? 
the fact that they were surrounded with palm trees and all these things, all these details describing just his gardens. So if Allah is describing his gardens, imagine what his actual house was like, right? So this guy was super wealthy, but this wealth became a test for him. So the second story is about the test of money. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses you with money, it can either be a blessing or it can be a test to see what you do with this money. If you're a millionaire, what are you doing with this money? Are you just spending it to buy cars and homes and you know, just partying? Are you just immersed in this dunya or are you doing something beneficial for it? Okay, so that's the second test of this surah. Or this, the second story of the surah. The thirdly, in the, right in the middle of the surah, near about ayah number 55, so there's like 110 ayat in the surah. Ayah number 55 talks about another test. Guess who? Shaitan, okay, that's Shaitan right there, okay? I don't know what he looks like, but this guy looks like Shaitan, so we can say, yeah. So that's fitna number three, okay? Fitna number three, the fitna of Iblis, the fitna of Shaitan. The fourth or the third story of the surah is about Musa alayhi salam and his journey with who? With Khidr, okay, with Khidr. And that's the test of knowledge, okay? The fitna of knowledge. Basically, the story goes like this. Musa Islam gave a khutbah to his people. Who, was, who were the people of Musa Islam? What were they known as? Bani Israel. So he gave a khutbah, and after the khutbah, this guy walks up to Musa Islam and says, uh, Hey, Musa Islam, is there anyone who knows more than you? Is there one, anyone out there who has more knowledge than you? And Musa Islam made the mistake of saying, No, of course not. I am the most knowledgeable. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to teach Musa Islam a lesson, commands him to go and search for this man called Khidr and seek knowledge from him. So we have an example of a prophet going on a journey to learn from a man, okay? To teach us that sometimes knowledge can become a test for you. Allah can bless you with so much knowledge that you actually think highly of yourself. You have an ego issue. Then you start showing your knowledge muscles to people and start getting into arguments and debates just to prove how smart you are and how dumb people are. Okay, so that's the story of uh, Musa salam, the, the story of the test of what? Knowledge. Okay, let's refresh quickly. So the youth, their story was a test of what? Religion. The story of the two gardens, what was the test? Money. I can't hear the brothers. The sisters are awake. Brothers. The second story was a test of what? Money. The third was the story of the test of? And the fourth one is the story of Dhul-Qarnayn. A man who was traveling the east and the west and he was helping out people basically, okay? And that's basically the test of leadership or authority. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you authority, usually what happens with leaderships? Corruption happens, right? People take advantage of the kursi, the seat. And so that story is about how you, know, how you can sometimes be tested with your status in society. When you become a king, when you become someone of authority, when you have an empire under you. Some people take advantage of that. They use that unjustly to make you know, their own personal gains. And that's where corruption happens in, in politics mainly. So that, that, last story, that last story is a lesson for politicians all over the world. That here is a man who traveled the world, he had authority, he had power, and he, yet he was thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yet, yet he was someone who was just. He didn't, he didn't let that test, that leadership, become a test of failure for him. He, in fact, passed that test. But what interestingly also happened in the surah is that 
the Prophet ﷺ has told us that to recite the surah every week and to specifically memorize the first 10 ayat in another narration, the last 10 ayat. Okay? Why? It's going to protect us from the biggest fitna of all time, which is what? Fitna of Dajjal. Okay, so basically, the fitna of Dajjal is, according to the Prophet ﷺ, the biggest fitna we will ever face. Okay? This is according to the hadith of the Prophet. ﷺ. The biggest fitna that human beings will face on the face of this earth is going to be the fitna of Dajjal. So it's as if Allah is telling us, and the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us, that if you are able to understand this surah and its lessons, I will protect you from the fitna, the, the greatest fitna of Dajjal. Which means if you are protected from the greatest fitna of Dajjal, then what about these other mini fitnas? Will you be passing them? Inshallah, yes, right? So the fitna of religion, money, iblis, knowledge, and, and leadership, all these fitnas, these tests are mini tests compared to the fitna of Dajjal. The Prophet said, this, fit, this surah is going to protect you from Dajjal which is enough for you to protect you from all the other tests. So we're, let's talk a little bit about Dajjal and its importance, okay? What's the big deal about the fitna of Dajjal? And how is it relevant to our times? You know what I really like about Surah Al-Kahf as I was doing research on the surah? Is the fact that it is, the lessons in it are so relevant to our times. You know how like some people think that Quran is a book that was re revealed more than you know, 1400 years ago? It's a book for old men who are just sitting in the masjid with white beards. It's not really relevant to our times. Times have changed. This is the 20, you know, it's, we're in 2015. Come on, man. How can a book revealed more than 1400 years ago have lessons for us today? But inshallah, by the end of today, you will all realize how relevant these lessons are to our times, okay? So what's the importance of Dajjal and what's, what's the danger? Um, we've all come across videos on YouTube about, you know, the, the Freemasons and the Illuminati and the all-seen one-eye. Hands up for those of you who have seen those clips. Yes, very interesting stuff, right? And it gets you hooked. You keep watching one video after another, trying to understand what this pyramid is all about and what's this all-seen one-eye, how come it's on the dollar bill, how come, uh, you know, celebrities all over the world are doing, you know, uh, this pyramid sign and their concerts and then music videos. What's the link between celebrities and music and shamelessness and Dajjal and all this fitna, right? Well, sad news is we're not going to be talking about those, okay? We're going to be talking about other things that are even more interesting. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ has also told us that Dajjal will have... So he has actually two eyes, but his left, or sorry, his right eye will be disfigured, okay? And the Prophet has said that this eye will actually look like a hanging grape. Okay? Like a hanging grape. Why am I describing to you who Dajjal is? Why? Because if you see him, you better know who he is. Okay? You better know who he is. Then the Prophet has described him to us in a lot of detail, by the way. The believers will be able to see these three letters on his forehead. Ka, Fa, and Ra. From Kafir, basically. Who will be able to see these letters? Only the believers. And according to some narrations, even those believers who are illiterate, believers who cannot read or write, they will also be able to read, subhanAllah. So this is like a divine protection from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So um, his right eye is disfigured. His forehead has these three letters in them. The Prophet has also gone in more detail to describe us who he is. And I want you all to pay attention to his description, just in case you run across him one day, you know, 
You got to know who he is. And the Prophet described him to us so that we can take this thing seriously. Some of you are smiling and think it's a joke, but it actually, why did, why did the Prophet describe him to us? Think about it. Right? Why so much detail? So the Prophet said he's young. He's going to be young. He's red-skinned. Okay? He's going to be short, uh, curly hair. Okay? So he's going to have a nice perm on his hair. Um, big forehead, wide shoulders. Some narrations also say that his walk, like his feet will be like wide when he walks. Okay, so make sure you watch his feet also. And um, he will have no children. So if a guy comes up to you with his young kid and says, hey, I'm Dajjal, say sorry, you know, you have kids. And also he will dominate the world. You will have world domination. Have you guys heard the term new world order? Okay, so he's going to actually dominate the world. And uh, there's two cities in the world where he will not be able to enter. What are the two cities? Mecca and Medina. Yeah, so some people actually move to Mecca and Medina just to save themselves from the fitna. Not a bad idea. Yeah. At least own some property there if you have money. I would if I had one day. Um, so world domination except in Mecca and Medina. And um, he will be showing us like some awesome tricks. Deception. His, his weapon or his... Strength will be showing us deceptions. Dajjal's main objective will be to get all of us to disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to believe that He is God, actually. So He's going to be showing us miracles or, or illusions that may seem like they're really amazing. Like He will be able to command the sky to rain and it will rain. He will be able to command the plants to grow out of the ground and they will grow. He will be able to cut a man in two pieces and then bring him back together and he'll be alive again. He will be able to travel from the east to the west in very, very fast speeds and very short periods of time. He will, be, he will go to a child whose parents have died and he will bring his parents back to life in front of that child. He will also have, like in the narration it says that the wealth of the world will follow him. So he's going to have control over, he's going to be pretty rich, okay? A lot of money under his disposal, a lot of resources, okay? And also... Um, something that you all have to realize is if Dajjal shows up in your time, okay, Allahu A'lam if he does, but if he does, and he's, he's probably going to show you a river of fire. The Prophet ﷺ has told us the advice that if he shows you the river of fire, he's going to actually show you two rivers. One was going to be a river of fire, and the other is going to be a river that looks really nice and, you know, cool and good temperature. Guess which pool the believers are supposed to jump into? The pool of fire. So remember my words, okay? Allah, you're my witness. I gave them the advice. <laughs> it may seem crazy to do it, you know? But that's the whole point. You go against what, he, what, what uh, deception this guy's showing you, you know? So you jump into the pool of fire and you will be saved, inshallah. But guess what most people will be doing? Most people will not be jumping to the pool of fire. Most people will jump into the pool that seems that it's safe. And they will be basically uh, burning in hell forever, basically. So that's, that's the trick of Dajjal, okay? And um, the importance of Dajjal. So the Prophet also told us about Dajjal um, that when you see him, recite unto him the first 10 ayat of Surah Al-Kahf. And that will protect you from him. And the Prophet has also told us that the, the, when Dajjal comes out, there's going to be fierce wars that will happen between Muslims and Dajjal. And guess who's going to win most of those wars? Dajjal. So the Muslims are going to be losing over and over and over again 
uh, in, the, in this war. Okay, so this is kind of like the backdrop of Dajjal. Now, how, is, how are these four stories relevant to the time of the Prophet It's very important for us to also kind of put ourselves into the shoes of the people of Mecca. Okay, so the Quran, when it's revealed in Mecca, I want you to remember this. It's a very nice tip for you. When you read Quran, always try to put yourself in the shoes of the people receiving revelation. So there's primarily three different types or three uh, groups that are re receiving revelation in Mecca. Who are they? So there's the Prophet himself. Okay, that's one angle that you have to look at. The second angle is the angle of the believers, the Sahaba. And the third angle is the angle of the Quraysh, the disbelievers, okay? So let's try to understand what these surahs mean to, to these three recipients. So the youth of the cave, when, when did I tell you this, this surah was revealed? Revealed the last portion of Mecca, where the Muslims were suffering. Who else was suffering and decided to, to hide in a cave? Which story does this remind you of? The youth of the cave, didn't they? So it's as if Allah is telling the Prophet the Sahaba this story to give them hope. That listen, just like you are being persecuted, you will soon be going into a cave. Which cave is that? The cave of Thawr, right? We all know from Hijrah, the Prophet and Abu Bakr Sadiq they hide into a cave of Thawr and then they end up going to Medina and then being protected. And so similarly, Allah is basically foreshadowing. You guys know what foreshadowing is? Okay? So as the Prophet is receiving this, or, or he's listening to this story and reciting it onto the Sahaba, they're all getting excited. Wow. Just like Allah protected the youth of the cave, He's going to protect us. But we will have to kind of hide in a, in a cave before we come out, before the good news comes out. So that's the first story. The second story about money. This is actually a story of warning to the Quraysh. Didn't the Quraysh have a lot of wealth and, and uh, material kind of power? Yes or no? So it's a reminder for them that, listen, if you get deceived by your wealth, if you get so indulged in your wealth and you forget Akhirah, then your end will be like this man whose gardens were destroyed, weren't they? So that's kind of like a reminder to the disbelievers. This third story of, of Musa Salam and Khidr, didn't they go through different incidences where uh, things weren't working out right, right? A boat was kind of sinking, it got damaged, uh, a young son got murdered for no reason, and, you know, someone was trying to raise a, a wall that was falling, you know. There are all these different incidents happening. These are, this is a story of hope for the believers also. If you go through tough times in your life, if you go through difficulties, don't worry about it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, out of His wisdom, has better plans for you. Just like He had better plans for the people who, whose boat got ruined. Just like He had better plans for the family whose son died. Just like he had better plans for the orphans whose wealth got preserved by keeping that wall up. Similarly, Allah is telling the believers and the Sahaba and the Prophet ﷺ that I will take care of you. Don't worry about it. Even if you go through ups and downs in life, even if you go through difficulties, I'll take care of you. So that's the third story. And the fourth story is also a lesson for the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba that just like Dhul Qarnayn had control and authority over the world and he was helping people and, and spreading justice all across the world, similarly, I'm gonna very soon put the Muslims in the same situation where Islam is gonna be spreading all over the world and peace will be spreading and justice will be spreading and people will want to become Muslims just because of the fact that justice is spreading. Did that happen very soon after the Prophet ﷺ died? Yes? 
You guys see how these four stories are actually foreshadowing the, the, uh, the future of the Muslims? So it's so very important for us to understand the relevance. So really cool stuff. So what are we going to be focusing on? The youth of the cave. So let's talk a little bit about the youth of the cave. Now, um, what I want to first do is, in the, in the introduction, is talk to you about the first 10 ayat of uh, this, this uh, surah. Okay? Just the first 10 ayat. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to analyze those first 10 ayat and see how these first 10 ayat protect us from Dajjal. Okay, that's going to be my attempt in this first part of the session. And in the second part of the session, we're going to be looking at some of the re reflections and gems of the story of the youth of the cave. Okay? So the first 10 ayat. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alhamdulillah, anzal ala kitaba, wa Basically, we are thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and praising Him because He has revealed this book onto His slave. Who is His slave in this, in this ayah? Who is the slave? It is the Rasulullah sallallahu Okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down the book to His slave, to His ultimate slave, and He did not make any iwaj in it. Now, this word is extremely important for our discussion today. Iwaj basically means crookedness. So you have a straight line and you have a crooked line or a crooked road, okay? That crookedness is called iwaj, all right? You gotta, you gotta keep this in mind, very important. But then Allah says, qayyiman. It has no iwaj, this book has no iwaj, it is what? Qayyiman, it is straight. It is straight in and of itself and it, it makes us straight also. And we'll talk about this in the future, okay? But what I want you to understand is the difference between qayyiman and iwajan. Allah is saying this book has no crookedness, it is straight. Okay? This book is warning of an intense, intense war that's about to happen. The word ba's actually means a war in which there will be harm inflicted upon you. That's what ba's means. And Allah didn't just say ba's, He said shadidan. There's going to be severe war. Okay? So this book is warning of that severe war, and it's also giving good news to the believers. Which believers? Those who do good deeds. Now, in a war, there's always a winner and a loser, right? Correct? Now, you'd, you'd imagine that when Allah hinted about warning of an intense war, what, what, what's supposed to logically be the good news for the believers? Winning the war, right? Well, guess what? Allah doesn't say that Allah is giving good news of winning of the war. Allah said they will get ajr hasan. They will get good reward, inshallah. And which ajr is Allah talking about? Akhirah. He's talking about Jannah. What does that mean? Think about it. Yeah, like I told you, Muslims are going to be losing the war against Dajjal over and over again, right? So Allah is saying, you guys, I have good news for you, but you know what? Let's save the good news for Akhirah. In dunya, it's going to be pretty tough, okay? And so, مَا كِثِينَ فِيهِ abada is describing Jannah. Now, what's really amazing about this part of the ayah is, usually, you know, the, the term خَالِدِينَ فِيهِ abada. You guys come across this in the Qur'an, خَالِدِينَ فِيهِ abada. It's usually part of an ayah, isn't it? It's never separated as a separate ayah. But here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala separated مَا كِثِينَ فِيهِ abada as ayah number three in the surah. And he didn't use the word khalidin, he used a unique word in the Qur'an, which means, makithin uh, means from mukth, which means to anticipate something amazing that's about to happen. 
Okay? And this is no, used nowhere else in the Quran except this surah. Why did Allah do that? To emphasize that, listen, for the believers, the real reward will be in Jannah. And Allah wants us to, to anticipate this reward. And to give you an example of this, like, so for example, in Jannah, you know, uh, one of my students once asked, uh, so, um, you know, if I'm playing soccer in Jannah and I, uh, you know, score a goal, right? The first time you score a goal in Jannah, how will you feel? Be like, yeah, that's amazing, you know? So you, so you try a double kick and you double kick and it goes in the goal and you'll be celebrating and you'll be like, yeah, wow. But what will happen in the third and fourth and fifth shot? What's going to happen eventually? You're going to be shooting the ball again? And you'll be like, yeah, whatever, you know? Okay, there's another goal there. And then what? So you're going to get bored of it, basically, after time. Another example of this I gave in Surah Al-Rahman is mangoes, right? If you love mangoes and you have one mango after another, by the third and fourth mango, what's going to happen? Right? You start getting a stomach upset eventually. Why? Because too much mango is not good for you. Okay? I keep telling my wife, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing, right? When you have too much amazing biryani, you have to go to the bathroom then, right? Okay? So Allah is saying, in Jannah, you will be makithin. You will be every single soccer shoot that you do is going to be better than the one before. Every single mango you have is going to be better than the one before. And makithin, you know, every, how many of you married here? Okay, so all of you were makithin before the wedding night. Before the wedding day, you were makithin. You were anticipating. You couldn't sleep the night before. You were anticipating and you couldn't wait for that day to come. Okay? So that's what makithin means. So Allah is telling us, listen, I want you to be excited about Jannah. Don't feel that Jannah is going to be boring. Don't feel that you will ever get bored in Jannah. Every single moment of Jannah is going to be better than the one before. Every single look at your spouse is going to be better than the one before. You know, one student once asked me, am I going to get bored of my wife eventually? I mean, can I have a different version of my wife? Because I see her all over, I keep seeing her and you know, I'm afraid that I might get bored of her eventually. So every single look at your wife will be better than the one before. For the sisters, every, if your, if your uh, husband you know, is not fit and if he has a big belly and you're not happy with the way he looks, don't worry, in Jannah he's going to be like, you know, better than Shah Rukh Khan and Amr Khan and all these guys. Okay? So then Allah goes on to talk about um, a group of people who are going to be uh, also a very important focus of our talk today. And to warn those people who took a son with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who are these people? Who took, who associated a son with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The Christians. The Christians. Okay? So this story, Allah in this first 10 ayat actually talks to the Christians. He's telling us that this book, this Qayyiman book is going to warn the people who have taken a son. And Allah doesn't stop there. Allah comments even further and He says they have no idea what they're talking about. This is such a big thing they're saying. They're saying nothing but lies. What, what do we understand when we read this ayat? What are we supposed to feel? What is Allah expressing? Anger, severe anger at these people for associating a son with Allah and for saying such horrendous things, okay? And then Allah says, nafsaka." He's talking to the Prophet Perhaps, Ya Rasulullah, you would want to kill yourself out of grief because of what these people are doing. 
You know, the Prophet ﷺ, his mission in life was what? To call people to the oneness of Allah, right? And why would the Prophet ﷺ cry at night in prayer? Out of sadness, right? That people, these people aren't listening to my message. And you know what? The Prophet ﷺ, his burden was unlike any other Prophet's burden. Who can tell me why? Because previous Prophets knew that there is another Prophet coming after them. So the pressure wasn't that much. But for the Prophet ﷺ, this was the final Prophet, the final messenger. No, no one else is going to come after him. He was Khatim al-Nabiyyin, the seal of all Prophets. And therefore, the pro pressure on the Prophet ﷺ was unlike any other pressure. And therefore, he was grieving every day that these people aren't believing. And the Prophet ﷺ here in these ayat, Allah is telling us, specifically he's grieving on the fact that people will follow these people. If they, you know, out of, uh, if they don't follow this hadith, this Qur'an, sadly, you know. And so Christianity and the religion of Christianity is going to be a topic of discussion in these first 10 ayat. Also Allah says, We have made this earth a decoration for them so that we may test who of them is the best in good deeds. And so zina, the word zina, let's talk about zina. When do we use decoration? When do we use decoration? Sisters, on the wedding day, right? There's decoration in the hall and you know the, mashallah, the makeup comes on and you know the salons make a lot of money from the hairstyling and stuff. Brothers, you go and make sure that you're wearing the best suit. Zina is always the case with you know parties for kids, there's always balloons and things like that. But guess what? After the party's over, after the wedding's over, what happens? The decoration comes off, right? Unless um, you, you can't get over it. You keep the balloons until they shrink in size, you know, and it starts smelling like rubber in your house, and then you take them out, okay? Some people do that. But for the most part, decoration is supposed to come off. Makeup comes off after the party, right, sisters? Any, anyone here sleeps with makeup on? No. And subhanAllah, I think there's makeup, special makeup, to, uh, called makeup remover or something, right? I don't understand, but... So the sisters have this weird thing where they put makeup on to remove makeup, right? I don't really understand. I need to ask my wife more about that, okay? But that's the idea. Makeup comes off after the party. Why did Allah use the word zina in this, in this surah? And by the way, you know how many times this word is repeated in this surah? Like four times. Four times this word is repeated. When a word is repeated in a surah more than once, what does that mean? Allah is emphasizing. He keeps reminding us that this world is temporary. It's zina. It's just like that decoration just going to come off. Do not be deceived by this beauty. Okay? And then Allah says, And we will most definitely make this world a flat, barren land. You know what a barren land means? Juruza. No plants, no, no flowers, nothing can grow in it. So all that zina, all that beauty, is all going to come down to nothing but a flat piece of barren land. Okay? And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we're on which ayah now? Ayah number 9. We're still on the first 10, okay? So ayah number 9, Allah gives us an intro to the story of the people of the cave. Now, the Prophet said, Memorize and understand and recite the first 10 ayat of Surah Al-Kahf and you'll be protected from Dajjal. So, we and Allah decided to include the story of the youth of the cave in these first 10 ayat. Is that by chance? Is that a coincidence? 
Now there's something important about this youth that, we ha- that Allah had to include in this first 10 ayat. So let's understand what is it that these youth of the cave have uh, in terms of the link between these, these, uh, these lessons, the first 10 ayat. So ayah number 10, Allah says, أَمْ حَسِبْتَ أَنَّ أَصْحَابَ الْكَهْفِ وَالرَّقِيمِ كَانُوا مِنْ آيَاتِنَا عَجَبًا It's actually a question. Allah is asking us, did you think that the story of the youth of the cave is uh, an amazing story? It's as if, you know, Allah is saying, it's not really a big deal for us to make a, a group of youth sleep for 309 years. That's not a big deal, that's nothing. Kun fayakun. Why are you so amazed? You know? And then Allah says, إِذْ أَوَّلْ فِتْيَةُ إِلَى الْكَهْفِ When the youth, when the young youth, they fled into the cave in shelter. فَقَالُوا رَبَّنَا آتِنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً وَهِيَ لَنَا مِنْ أَمْرِنَا رَشَدًا They made this dua. Okay? And by the way, the, the story of the youth of the cave um, is a very, very famous story even in previous religions. So if you, if you go, go on Google tonight and you search for sleepers of the cave, you're going to get like thousands of results because even the Christians, for them, these were heroes. But the Christians had their own version of the sleepers of the cave. They don't call them youth of the cave, they call them sleepers of the cave. Okay? And um, of course, they have their own kind of version of it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the true version of it in... Uh, Surah Al-Kahf Allah says in, in, in Surah Al-Kahf That we, we will re- reveal to you Their story with truth Because they have fabricated the truth According to the Christian uh, Version, you know These youth were Christians They believed in the, you know, that Jesus is the son of God And you know They believed that uh, They were basically uh, raised and they became saints and then you know Christians started worshiping these people as saints thinking that they will do shafa'ah for them on the day of judgment okay so they have like this messed up version of theirs okay and, and, and they actually honor these youth even in their churches some churches have you know uh, images and drawings of these youth and they even have the dog with them you know so some parts of the surah uh, or of the story are similar to ours but others are completely different okay and, and the fact that Allah actually mentioned that this story of the youth of the cave is a fitna of deen defeats the whole purpose of their version, right? Because in their version, they're actually promoting shirk. Okay, so they completely missed the whole point of the surah itself. Okay. So, um, what are the main topics of discussion now for the first 10 ayat? Number one, crookedness versus upright, okay? Iwajan versus... That's the first thing that we talked about in this first 10 ayat. Number two, Allah warned of an intense war. So we're going to be talking about that. Number three, we're going to be talking about how Christianity is linked to this whole thing. Okay. Number four, zina, right? The fact that this world is zina, materialism. And number five, the youth of the cave. So these five topics will be our discussion for the coming 20 minutes or so. Where I'm going to be, inshallah, showing you how these are all linked. Okay. Why, how are they all linked and why did Allah include this, these five topics in the introduction of this surah in the first ten ayats that will eventually save us from which fitna? Fitna of Dajjal. Okay, so you're all ready inshallah? Alright, let's begin inshallah. So, um, this whole world, this whole universe revolves around what we call ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just like the Qur'an is made up of ayat, everything around us is also an ayah. An ayah basically in, in uh, you know, simple English means a miraculous sign. 
And what makes an ayah so special is that there's always two dimensions to an ayah. There's the physical seen dimension and there's the spiritual unseen dimension. So how many dimensions of an ayah? Two. Can you repeat after me? Number one, which one? Seen. Number two? Unseen. Very good. So I'll give you examples of this to make it very, very clear. Allah talks about the sun all over the Quran, right? The sun and light. How many of you attended Surah An-Nur? Okay, for those of you who didn't, astaghfirullah al-azim. Okay? But Surah An-Nur, we talked about this extensively. The fact that Allah describes Nur as something that's beneficial physically, right? Isn't Nur beneficial physically? Like without Nur, can you guys see me now? No, you'd be looking at the, like a, a black guy with, you know, you couldn't see me. So Nur has physical benefits, but what are the spiritual benefits of Nur also? What are spiritual benefits of Nur? When Allah through His Quran puts light in your heart, then you start seeing the truth. Then you, your life becomes filled with light. Okay, so that's, this is an example of how light in the Quran or even the sun has two dimensions. Remember ayah, seen, the seen benefits of the sun versus the spiritual benefits of the sun. Just like the Quran, when it came out, it spread light all across the universe and people benefited from this. Are you all with me so far? Another example of this is rain. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about rain. Now does rain have physical seen benefits? Yes, it does, right? Plants come out, trees, and you know, animals then feed off of these, and then we eat the animals, and life goes on, basically, right? But what are the, what, what's the spiritual benefit of rain? Allah keeps talking about rain over and over and over again in the Quran, because there's a second dimension to those ayat. And that is the, the spiritual rain, the rain of the Quran coming down on our hearts. And then when our hearts, the, you know, the rain feeds our, the seeds of our hearts, the ruh, then goodness comes out of human beings. And then when goodness comes out, just like those branches, when they sprout out, trees grow. And then when trees grow, fruits come, and then people benefit from those fruits. You guys get this? Okay? So there's two dimensions to every single thing around us. Like, whenever you, for example, whenever I look at my kids, are there any physical things that are amazing about my, my two-year-old daughter, Husna? Of course, she's so cute, she's so nice, she's saying baba, she's saying all these nice cute words. There's physical things that are amazing about her. She's cute, like I can't stop looking at her. But what are the spiritual reminders I get when I see my daughter? I thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for such an amazing miracle, right? I mean, that's, she is a reminder in herself. By seeing my daughter every single time, by you guys seeing your kids every single time, it's supposed to be a spiritual experience. But we don't see that, we just see monsters, right? Little monsters running around the house. <laughs> but subhanAllah, if you see the world with this perspective, that everything around you is an ayah, your life will completely change. Wallahi, it will completely change. So that's the discussion of ayah. Is it clear so far? It's very important for you to understand this concept because we're going to come back to it in a second. Now, how many of you liked history lesson back in school? Okay, for those of you who do, you're weirdos, okay? Because most people hate history. I used to hate history. Why? Because teachers who teach history are usually very, very boring, okay? And they usually like kind of make you sleep. They make you memorize stuff just so you can pass the exam, right? So inshallah, I want you to bear with me. I'm going to try to make this the simplest, easiest history lesson uh, for you guys, inshallah, because we have to go through history. 
And we're, it's going to be really beneficial for all of you to understand the concept of history. And we're going to be talking today's lessons about history of crookedness in the past. History of what? Crookedness. What was the Arabic word for crookedness in the Quran we just read? Iwaja. So this is history of Iwaja, basically. Okay? How the world was kept going into Iwaj. How the world kept going into crookedness. Okay? We'll start off with the Jews. We start off with the Jews. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to Musa salam the Torah. And what was the point of the Torah? Or the point of any book and any messenger was to bring people back to what? The straight path, right? Because this is, of course, this is like the, the Islam of that time. So the, the rabbis and the Jews, when they got the book, guess what they did with it? Did they stay qayman or did they deviate? They deviated. How did they deviate? They did something terrible. They took the Torah and they made it a book of just laws, dry laws, boring laws, halal and haram only. They completely took out the spiritual element of these laws. So I'll give you an example of how in Islam, every law has a spiritual benefit. So uh, aren't we, like, don't we have to pray five times a day? Yes? Is it a law or no? It is a law, but does it have spiritual benefits? Yes, it does. It makes you a better person. It teaches you patience. It increases your iman. Correct? Similarly, fasting is a law in the Quran. We have to fast 30 days of Ramadan or 29 or whatever, right? Now, are there spiritual benefits of fasting? Yes. Similarly, paying zakat or sadaqah, when you give sadaqah, is there a spiritual benefit to that also? Yes. So there's these different benefits that come with every single law in the Qur'an. There's no law in the Qur'an that Allah made a law just for the sake of law. Okay? The Jews, what they did was they completely took out the spiritual benefits. They just focused on halal, haram, halal, haram. And they got into these debates. And therefore they deviated. And so Allah had to send them another prophet. Same people, Bani Israel. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent them Isa alayhi salam to get them back on track. Remember, they went to Iwaj. Allah wants to, wants to bring them back onto Qayyiman now. So he sent them Isa salam with the Injil. Now the purpose of the Injil was to bring back the spiritual element, which was, which was completely taken out from their deen, correct? So that's, that's the whole point of Isa salam's message, the message of spirituality. And so Isa salam did his part. After that, what happened to Isa salam? We learn from history what happened to him. Did he die? No, I hope you don't believe he died, right? He didn't die. Allah raised him, okay? People think he died, but he didn't die. Allah raised him. And then who, who took control over that, that part of the land? The Romans, okay? So the Romans, now we're talking about the Romans, okay? So we saw how Jews deviated. Let's talk about the Christians now. So Romans, they were actually people of paganism. You know what paganism is? Paganism is when you believe in shirk. When you associate multiple gods. Uh, I'm sure you've studied, how many of you studied Greek mythology in school? No? So you guys don't know who Zeus is and Athena and Poseidon and all these different gods. Okay, god of war, god of wealth, god of love, okay, all these things. So Roman paganism was uh, very common and they were inspired by these, this Greek mythology, mythology because Romans, Greeks, they were very close with each other. Okay? And so when Romans lived uh, together with Christianity, there was a problem, a big problem that happened in, in history. For 300 years, the Romans and Christians had a, a very big conflict going on. 
okay? Con conflict in the sense that, you know, those who believed in multiple gods couldn't agree with those who believed in, in the Trinity, and there was people who believed in the one God, right? They were the true believers of Isa salam also. There was multiple versions of Christianity, and, and everyone was basically struggling against another. And how long did this take? 300 years gone in conflict, okay? It was pretty messed up, very messed up times for the Christians. They don't talk about this in the media, okay? And they say that the muwahidun, you know, the people of Tawheed, the true Christians who believe the true message of Isa, you know how many generations they lasted? Just two generations. That's it. After that, they disappeared. So it was just shirk all over the place. And so for 300 years, uh, this conflict was going on until the Roman king Constantine in 300 AD, he decided to issue a, uh, or he decided to pass a law. The law would be that from now on, there will, the state religion will be the religion of the Pauline version of Christianity. Which version? Pauline. Basically, this is a version of Paul, a really, really messed up guy who completely messed up Christianity. He come, came up with these poisonous ideas like the Trinity. You guys know what the Trinity is, right? You ever seen Christians do that? So that's the, the God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all that kind of stuff. And then he, he introduced thoughts like the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus was actually God, and God came down in the form of a man. He introduced things like uh, the crucifixion that... Jesus died on the cross for the sins of humanity, to save humanity, and therefore Christians can party in this dunya because Jesus has already died for their, for their sins. Completely messed up stuff, okay? But this became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Can you believe this? And if you didn't believe in this, guess what? You'll be executed and you will not even be buried. Okay? So, pretty messed up stuff. Now, who did I say was influenced by the Romans also? The Greeks, okay? Before we go on the Greeks, what just happened with Christianity after this law was passed? Iwaj, okay? Christians ended up going into Iwaj. Isa came to straighten them up. What happened? Went into major Iwaj, okay? Major, major Iwaj. Now, the Greek philosophers who were living with the Romans, they were known for what? Who knows? They were known for thinking, for using the brain. They were known for, to be people of logic, people who use reason. And when they came across these thoughts about, you know, the Trinity, God, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, three equals one, one equals three, Jesus is God, but, but Jesus died on the cross, so that means God died on the cross? Doesn't make sense. How can God die on the cross, right? All these things, all these doubts started coming up in their minds, and they started thinking. And they started writing, and they started giving lectures about how messed up all this Christian version of Paul was. What happened to the Roman kings when the Greeks arrived? When the Greeks started spreading this uh, you know, concept of thinking, what happened to the Romans? They got really upset because there was no order in society anymore. You know, People started kind of like... Uh, there was like a revolution that was about to start. And to stop the revolution from happening, the revolution of thought, Justinian, the, king, the Roman king in 529, he issued another crazy, crazy uh, law. He actually deported every single Greek philosopher in Rome. Okay, so they were basically an issue. Get out of here. Greeks were no longer allowed to think. 
They wanted to think they go outside the Roman Empire. And so, and so, and what did they do with the books that were written by the Greeks? All burnt, completely destroyed. And they actually, what, ironically what happened is these philosophers, where, where did they end up? In the Muslim lands. Okay, I'll come, I'll come back to this point, but they ended up in the Muslim lands and the Muslims took their books and translated them into Arabic and you know, there was a big rise of thought and logic in the Muslim world. But we'll come back to this point now. So for, for now, what you need to understand is the Greeks started this revolution, but it got stopped by Justinian. He kicked them out, he burnt their books, and the church issued some more policies now, okay? Even more messed up, Iwaj. Okay, again, example of Iwaj. Now the, the issue, the Justinian said from now on, halal and haram is not decided by the Bible, it's gonna be decided by the Pope. Okay, number two, the Pope is free from sin. The Pope is masum, you know? He cannot sin, he's free from sin, he's like God or a prophet. And then he said, another law was rational thinking, so if you use your brain, that's from the devil, that's waswasa from shaitan. So say astaghfirullah, pray to rak'ah and don't think, basically. Um, whereas does our deen ask us to think all the time? Doesn't Allah keep saying, afala yaqilun? Afala yatafakkaroon? Our deen is a, is a deen of thought, right? It's a deen of, yes, there is spirituality, but there is also thought in it. And so another crazy, crazy law was that denying the church's rituals is kufr. Okay, and the Pope would be able to forgive your sins. So, you know, a guy would walk up to the, the, the confession stand. You guys know the confessions, right? You've seen it in the movies, right? Where you basically hide on, behind a curtain and you say, uh, Father, I, uh, I watched a really bad uh, YouTube video yesterday, so uh, Father, please forgive me. So the father will say, uh, yeah, sure, $20, and inshallah, you'll be forgiven. So you pay $20, father says, go, son, you're forgiven. So you say, alhamdulillah, then. <laughs> So this is like their messed up version of istighfar and tawbah, right? That the, the Pope and the church has the license to forgive. And also, they decided that no one would be able to have a Bible in their house. Imagine, it, it was illegal for you to have a Bible in the house. It was haram for you to read the Bible and study it for yourself. The only way you would be able to read and understand the Bible is if you go to the church and let the, let the, let the Pope and the church do tafsir of the Bible for you. Otherwise, you're not allowed. You're, you're a kafir. You're out of this religion. Okay? So pretty messed up stuff happening. Okay? Are you okay so far with this boring history lesson? You, you'll get the picture at the end, inshallah. But bear with me, please. Just a little bit more. So now, fast forward 13th century. Okay? There's like a couple of hundred years later. Rationalism returns to Europe. The Greek thinking, the thought, it returns back to Europe and it, it returns big time and now there's a revolution against the church. Think about it, why did the revolution come? Because people got sick of this weird religion that, that, that didn't make sense at all, okay? And so there was a big revolution and then the Renaissance happened. Renaissance, basically there was two fruits of the Renaissance, one was the Protestant movement of Christianity. You guys heard of Protestant Christians? How many of you heard of Protestant Christians? Yeah. So Protestants, that was basically a revolution against the Bible, basically to allow them to have the Bible in their homes, to allow them to read the Bible for themselves. That was, that was their protest against the Roman church, you know, that let us have a Bible in our homes, let us read it for ourselves. 
And the second uh, result of this renaissance was secularism. Very, very dangerous stuff now. Now we're getting into the juicy part, okay? So now you can wake up. The guy in the back, now you can wake up, inshallah, okay? So secularism. Now secularism, what is secularism? It's separating the deen from the state. Separ separating religion from the state. You want to practice your deen? Go in the masjid. But don't bring deen into politics, don't bring deen into schools, don't bring deen into uh, economy, don't bring deen into family affairs. Deen isn't only in the masjid. That's it, not outside. Okay? So that's secularism. And what happened was they started uh, this big, big, big revolution against uh, anything that had to do with God. Anything that had to do with God, okay? So they said, you know what, let's stop studying God and now pay attention, okay? This is really important stuff. So they said, let's stop studying God. It has brought us nothing but conflict, bloodshed, problems. Let's stop that. Let's stop studying the Creator. Let's start studying the creation. And so the, the, that was the rise of the sciences of the physical world. And that's where things like exploration of the world started happening. And that's why science advanced so much that people ended up discovering the galaxies and the planets and the stars and you know, all these explorations. That was a result of this rev scientific revolution. Okay? Let's stop studying God. Let's study the creation of God. That's number one. You're all with me so far? Number two, let's stop studying the ruh. There's no point in studying the ruh. It has brought us no benefit. We'll never know anything about the ruh, so let's just stop studying the ruh. Let's study the body instead. Let's study the physical body and medicine and health. And that's where the rise of the medical you know, sciences started happening. Biology and medicine and all these sciences that have to do with the human body and health and hygiene and nutrition and all these things, okay? Number three. What do we say? So number one, let's stop studying the creator. Let's start studying creation. Number two, let's stop studying the ruh. Let's start studying the body. Number three, they said, let's stop discussing this, this uh, depressing topic of the afterlife. Let's stop talking about death. Let's stop talking about the grave. Let's focus on this dunya. I mean, we're living here right now, so let's improve our life right here, right now. And that's where they started, you know, uh, building cities and making this life a better place and urban planning and, you know, architecture and engineering and all these, like the industrial revolution started happening. Where this life was basically studied and, and how, to, how to make your homes better, how to make your cities better and schools and all these other things started taking place, okay? And lastly, the concept of morality. They said, we don't want anyone to tell us what's halal and haram. Let's eliminate that. Let's, let's go to what we call relative morality. And this is poisonous thought, by the way. Relative morality means what is right for you doesn't necessarily have to be right for me. What was right 50 years ago doesn't have to be right today. Okay, so that's dangerous thought. I'll give you an example of this, okay? So this is what swimming costumes looked like a long, long time ago in the West. This is how women dress for the beach. Okay, I'm not making this stuff up. This is real stuff. And they used to have signs in the beach that you are not allowed to dress immodestly, otherwise you will be fined, you will be sent to jail. So this is how women dressed for the beach long, long time ago. Today, 
It's the complete opposite, right? And so you see how relative morality messed up things? Okay, the, does the Quran teach us relative morality or standard morality? Standard, right? What is right 1400 years ago is right today. What was wrong 1400 years ago is wrong today. Alright? And so, these four poisonous thoughts. Let's go over them again one more time. Number one, stop studying God, start studying the creation of God. Number two, stop studying the ruh, study what? The body. Number three, stop studying afterlife, death, grave, all these things, and studying what? Life on earth. And number four, let's eliminate morality and make it relative morality so that we can all enjoy this party. Okay? And so this time, the iwaj happened at the level of religion itself. Religion was thrown out the window, basically, in this part of history. Okay? And um, the idea was, religion is the opiate of the masses. Have you heard this term? That's a completely secular term, right? Where, where religion brainwashes people, religion brings bloodshed, religion brings corruption, and you know, not just, by the way, not just Christianity. What happened in general with secularism? All religions were put in this basket and thrown out the window, including Islam. You know how like today we complain about Islamophobia and the fact that you know, this whole world is against Islam? By the way, this is not something new. We're just the new kid on the block. This was something that was very common even for the Christians. Okay, people just didn't want deen. And that's when they said it's time for some brainwashing. And so they spread these poisonous thoughts in all the schools around the world. And all the colleges. And all the books. And with the you know, British colonization, these thoughts spread all over the world. Okay? And... Uh, what was promoted was secularism. Forget things that, are, that have to do with God, with afterlife, with uh, the ruh, and destroy morality. And this is basically uh, where, where we are experiencing something that all of you have seen in schools also, right? Have you guys seen this, experienced this, this kind of thought in schools also, for the most part? Some shades of it, maybe? Okay, good. So let's, let's talk about it uh, in a more depth now. The Europeans, they call these ages, it's about, you know, uh, from 680 to 1680, about a thousand years, they call these the dark ages of Europe. Why do they call them the dark ages of Europe? Because it was filled with conflict and killing and confusion, right? Before that, what happened was, just to show you, there's the Greeks, the Romans. They, they did some scientific advancement, didn't they? Yes? But after that, what happened was there was the Dark Ages. This part here was the Dark Ages. And then you had the Renaissance, in which 16th, 17th, 18th, and 20th century, the Industrial Revolution and the modern day uh, civilization grew completely. So they, they talked these, these ages, the Dark Ages of humanity. What was the cause of Dark Ages according to them? Religion, religion, okay? Are you all with me so far? So they said, let's throw religion out because religion will not make us any advancement in this dunya. Remember the concept of this, the, the ayah? How many dimensions of an ayah? Seen and? Unseen. Physical and 
spiritual. When you go back to the concept of uh, eliminating God and eliminating the ruh and eliminating uh, the afterlife, are these things seen or unseen? Think about it. Are these things seen or unseen? Unseen things, right? And this is, subhanAllah, something that uh, is very, very true also with uh, the fitna of Dajjal. Dajjal's fitna is a fitna of eliminating the unseen and the spiritual and fo- focusing only on the physical. And this is what this, this uh, fitna of the Christ- Christian uh, revolution and the secularism thought did to us throughout history. So the right eye is completely eliminated. Just like whose eye? The Dajjal's eye. You guys understand now? So the Dajjal sees only with one eye. The physical, the seen eye. And the spiritual eye is completely eliminated from that. And that thought spread all across the world through this, this small part of history that we just talked about. Okay? And so his fitna of deception now, we, it makes clear sense to us, right? What was common about all his miracles and all his signs? Will they be spiritual in nature or physical in nature? Physical in nature, right? Rain coming down, plants growing. Uh, by the way, are these impressive things, if you think about it now? Or are these things that are normal? Adi, yani. Can you, do you have something called artificial irrigation today? Artificial farming? Can you cut someone in half and put them back together with a surgery? Can you do a, a heart transplant or no? Of course you can. With technological advances, these things are something that are completely normal. What about traveling the east and the west in a very short period of time? Is that possible today with with planes? Yes. Okay. Um, Wealth being spread, all these things. So when you you look at it from this perspective, Dajjal's fitna and and his tricks won't be that impressive. If he comes up to you with these tricks, you're supposed to say, yeah, whatever, you know? You got anything better? You know? And so this is the fitna of Dajjal, guys. Dajjal wants you to see the world with one eye only, the eye of physical realities. He does not want you to think about Allah, does not want you to think about the ruh, does not want you to think about depressing topics like Yom al Qiyamah, afterlife, grave, death. He wants you to enjoy the beauties of the world. Zina. Remember how many times was Zina mentioned in the surah? Four times. Materialism, this is the fitna of Dajjal, being obsessed with this dunya only and forgetting your akhirah. Okay? The concept of uh, you know, buying, wanting more and more and more. Surah Al-Takathur talks about this. Al-Hakum Al-Takathur, wanting more and more and more. More bags, more abayas, more shoes, more phones, more wives. <laughs> right? You just want more and more and more. There's, you can't get enough of things. And the concept of brands, I want to buy this brand and that brand and this Gucci bag and that designer clothes and this car and that boat and that house with the swimming pool and this watch. Now, by the way, is it haram to, to have a Gucci bag, by the way? Is it haram to have a house with a nice pool? Is it haram to um, you know, own a yacht and a boat? Is it haram to um, wear a Rolex watch? Is it haram to drive a Bentley? It's not haram, but, it's, but when you get obsessed with this stuff and that's all that matters to you and that becomes your goal in life and you have no 
you know, the concept of deen and Allah and akhirah and you know, death, all these topics are completely disconnected from your life, then that's the problem. That's the fitna we're talking about. Okay? So I want you to get me straight here. I'm not asking you all to uh, do a wardrobe cleanup tonight. Okay? Keep your clothes, keep your cars, keep your homes. Okay? But just, it's, it's a frame of mind. It's how you look at the world. It's your attitude towards life. Okay? How you think. How you perceive the world. And so with this fitna of uh, materialism, basically Dajjal is kind of like portraying to us, who needs Jannah when you have Jannah in this world, man? I mean, look at some of the beautiful hotels in the world and resorts. We go to places like the Maldives. It really looks like you know, Jannah on earth. And so when you get, get so obsessed with these uh, you know, lux luxurious things, then you forget Jannah. You start enjoying this life so much that you forget Jannah. And by the way, you know when shaitan refused to bow down to uh, Adam out of respect to him as a command by Allah, you know what he did? Even he discredited the ruh, the spiritual part of the human being. What was Adam made of? Two things, two dimensions. Clay and the ruh, seen and the unseen. But when the shaitan responded to Allah, what did he say? You created me from fire and you created him from clay. Did he mention the ruh? So even shaitan has a similar strategy to Dajjal. He wants you to forget the ruh. And that's why if you go to a city center today, you see advertisements of shoes, of bags, you know, the cinemas packed, uh, clothes, Soaps, towels, you have salons. What are all these for? Selling you what? Physical stuff or spiritual stuff? Physical stuff, right? You see ads everywhere. Have you ever seen an ad about you know, increasing your iman lately? In C for somewhere? No. Have you seen a shop in city center where you know, they read Quran to you and remind you of death and stuff like that? Doesn't exist. Okay, so... Um, this is, this is the fitna we're in. We are bombarded with this materialism constantly, 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 and um, we have little time to think about the ruh and the soul and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and things like um, the afterlife. That's why this Quran for Family series is just a small, humble attempt for us to, once every other month, come together and reconnect. It's kind of like a reset button to Wake us up. We all need these reminders. The Quran is the ultimate reminder. Remember, Qayyiman? That's what the Quran does. Qayyiman. Okay? So, by the way, who will defeat Dajjal? Isa alayhi salam, right? He will come down and he will defeat Dajjal. By the way, another profound lesson in this concept of Isa alayhi salam coming back down. Is that a spiritual thing or a physical thing? It's, it's hard to believe, right? That someone was raised... And after thousands of years, I don't know how many years, he's going to come down and he's going to kill Dajjal for himself. It's as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose for Isa alayhi salam, the person or the prophet who was sent to these people, the Christians, to bring them back to Tawheed because they went into Iwajan. Allah decided to raise him and bring him back down to prove to the Christians that you are wrong. You guys got it wrong. He's going to break the cross in front of the Christians. And he's going to use Isa alayhi salam in the spiritual form, you know, he's going to bring him down to make the Christian realize that this whole notion of secularism and, 
and physical realities is all going to be destroyed or it's going to be defeated by Isa salam himself. Very, very profound lesson here, okay? And so Allah gave us how many eyes? He gave us two eyes to see the physical realities of things as well as the spiritual realities of things. And by the way, the Quran, does it have, does it encourage us to, st to study about God or no? Does the Quran encourage us to study about God? Does the Quran encourage us also to do good things for the universe and explore the universe? Of course, Allah created Adam on earth and he commanded us to be the Khalifa to, you know, He wants us to build this world. Okay, so the Quran actually has no problem with both deen and dunya. It has no problem with you working on your spirituality and the physical needs of this, this universe. So it's okay for you to study, you know, deen and dunya. Similarly, Allah wants us to study the, the soul, doesn't he? He wants us to take care of the ruh. How do we take care of the ruh, by the way? By remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We, we take care of the ruh by remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At the same time, does, is it haram to study biology? No, it's okay. Islam is a beautiful religion. It has the balance of both. Allah wants you to remember qiyamah. He wants you to remember your death. He wants you to remember the grave. But is it haram to make this world also nice? It's not haram, okay? It's completely fine for you to build the cities of the world and to enhance development and build factories and businesses. Completely fine. And then there's a the concept of standard morality. So what we're learning here is that Islam is a balanced religion, right? Qayyiman. It teaches us how to think straightly. It eliminates any sort of iwaj in your life. And by the way, going back to this chart, what did I tell you that Europeans thought of this age? Well, what happened to the Greeks when they were deported from Europe? Where did they go? They went to the Muslim lands, and the Muslims benefited from these thinkers. And they, they had Iman, and they had knowledge all of a sudden now. So you know what they did? They contributed 800 years of what is known as the Golden Age of Islam. This stuff is not taught to you in school, by the way. During the time of the dark ages of the Europeans, these were the golden ages of Islam. This is where, you know, Ibn Sina and, you know, things like uh, algebra came out and medicine and physics and astrology and all these new sciences that came out. These are all a result of the golden age of Islam. When did the golden age of Islam rise? When the believers had deen and? Knowledge, and deen, knowledge of deen and knowledge of dunya. You see what happens when you have deen and dunya? Allah gives you amazing, amazing tawfiq to do great things, okay? By the way, just a side note, there is this exhibition going on at the exhibition center called 1001 Inventions. I highly, highly recommend you all to go, okay? If I could give a fatwa, I would say it's fard for you to go. But I'm not going to do that. But seriously, go, take your kids with you. It's really awesome. They basically... What they're, you know this hidden part of history? These guys, they came together and they made this exhibition uh, to spread all over the world. 
even to the non-Muslims, to make them realize how amazing this contribution of the Muslims was in this hidden part of history, 800 years of amazing discoveries. You'll discover crazy things like, you know, how coffee was originally, you know, discovered by Muslims and soap and the camera and flying and all these amazing, amazing sciences. So really, um, you know, try your best to go. I think it's going on for two weeks. Today's the first day uh, at the exhibition center. I'm doing free marketing for them, although I have nothing to do with them, okay? But, um, so Muslims, now there was the golden ages, right? Are we living in the golden ages today? So I wonder what happened with the Muslims. Is there gonna be any iwaj for Muslims? Do you think? Okay, so British colonization happened. The secular thought spread all over the Muslim lands. And then um, there were certain reactions that had to take place. You know, uh, during the golden ages of Islam, the scholars of Islam, they were the elite of society. Everyone respected them and they were like the highest paid and they were like really respected in society. They had their status. But then, when the British came, they had to make decisions. When the British came, the British start, started uh, you know, destroying all these uh, religious institutions. And so there were three reactions that took place. Number one was, some of the scholars decided to fight back. And what was the result of that violence? Who won? Yeah, the British one, obviously, right? You can't, like, they were a minority, they were weak, they had nothing. So was violence a good uh, option? No, but unfortunately, some people took that option. The second option was, you know what, let's just leave, leave uh, this whole thing of deen, and let's go back to, or let's just go with the flow. If you can't, if you can't beat them, then what? Join them, right? And so the, a lot of people said, you know what, let's just become like the British, and let's just you know, focus on the uh, dunya, and let's improve lifestyles and get education degrees and just buy cars and you know, get married and have kids. And you know, this religion thing is just gonna cause problems for us, just leave it alone. We don't want problems, we, you know, we wanna enjoy life. So acceptance was second option. And the third option was hiding. And to be precise, hiding in a cave, kind of like a thing, right? Does it ring a bell? So a lot of scholars, what they did was they went into hiding and they hid from society. And what did they do in secret, in small groups? They started preserving Islam, right? By the way, was that a good thing to do? Yes, they had good intentions to save Islam. Otherwise, what would have happened to Islam? It, was, it would have gone, right? So basically, they started teaching halaqat of Quran. They started keeping, they kept talking in Arabic and they talked about hadith and seerah and all these lessons. But it was in small groups, minority. They had to go into that cave for a small period of time. And then when the Britishers left, by the way, when the colonizers left, did they leave their ideologies with the, with the Muslims or no? The secular ideologies remained in the minds of the Muslims. And, and so when the British left, these scholars who were in the cave, they came out. And they were, they, remember they were the elite of society, right? When they came out, what did the people think of them as uh, weirdos? You know, people who just came out of um, the cave. They had no clue what was going on in life. And you know, these scholars were, were giving them advice about this, about that, and they're like, what do you, what do you know about uh, finance? What do you know about politics? What are, are you gonna teach us about living our life? You're still living in the old days, man. You need to go back in your cave. 
So this concept of you know, uh, ridiculing the scholars started happening. Why? Because people were so disconnected from Dean for such a long time that when these guys came out of the cave, they weren't accepted in society. Everyone was so materialistic, everyone was so busy in their dunya that they had no time for this Dean. And so what happened? These Muslims, they went back into the caves and there was a re a, a, an even worse reaction. You know what that reaction was? They started saying to their circles that you need, you need to stop going out in the world. That world has a lot of fitna. These people out there, they're all kuffar. They're all going to hell. Save your deen. Stay in the cave. Learn Quran. Learn tajweed. You know, uh, study the book of Bukhari. Study hadith. Study the seerah. Just stay in this cave. Will, Allah will protect us. Allah will save us. Don't go out in the world. Don't study biology. Don't study chemistry. Don't study Islamic. Uh, or don't study finance. Don't go and work in the workplace. You'll go into the fitna. You'll get deceived by shaitan. And so... This is a sad reality of uh, the history of Muslims is that whereas the Quran teaches us to balance between deen and dunya, an evil reaction of this was uh, that the teaching of deen or dunya started taking place. You either choose deen or you choose dunya. And there was a big split in the ummah. And people, you had the minorities who were studying Islam, who were considered the losers of society, who were backward thinking, who were people who were issuing fatwas that didn't make sense, issuing fatwas that have no relevance, and usually these fatwas would then you know, be made fun of, right? Have you guys come across certain things like that? Yes? Okay, so this is what happened. And so, whereas the Quran says that this is qayyiman, iwajan started taking place in the Muslim world. On both sides, on one side you have people who became secular, too much into dunya, and then people who started pulling people away from dunya and only into deen. We have two types of iwaj happening there, subhanAllah. And so this was time for the Muslims to go into iwaj. Time for Muslims to go into iwaj. So how many groups have we seen go into iwaj so far? Three, right? First it was the Jews, then the Christians, and now it was the Muslims who went into iwaj. And, um, you know, we still see some of these... Uh, effects of this iwaj, right? Where in society sometimes, nowadays, what are parents usually encouraging their children to study? It's usually engineering or medicine or finance, right? Or accounts. When the son says, uh, Baba, Baba, I want to study history. What is the, what is the reaction of the parents? Khabardar, right? No. What are you going to earn? How are you going to live? How are you going to survive? It's not going to pay you anything. Right, so we have, yani, subhanAllah, the parents also have a role to play in this, that we have completely become people of, who believe that yani, studies should only be focused on things that make you money, money, money. Whereas who is the ultimate provider? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, okay. What about if your child comes to you and says, uh, I want to study Islam? What are the reactions usually? Parents don't like that, right? They get into depression mode and start making dua. Ya Allah, please don't let my son study Sharia. Please <laughs> let him become a doctor, let him become successful. SubhanAllah. So this balance is completely lost. Whereas, is there anything wrong with studying medicine and deen together? No, that's, that's the message of the Quran, really. And that's the message I want to leave you with also today, is that I want, inshallah, the youth sitting in the audience today and the parents to both encourage each other to study deen and dunya. We need successful 
people of dunya who are also connected to Allah. We need successful people of society who are connected to the Quran. Successful people of society who are also people of who remember death and qiyamah. People who are balanced. This is, this is the qayyiman of the Quran. This is what the Quran teaches you to do. We are not calling for people to go into caves. We're calling for people to balance between the deen and the dunya. Okay? So these are the lessons from history. Um, so now I just want to go over these 10 ayat again after we've done this recap of history and I want you to appreciate the ayat more. Okay? Alhamdulillah alladhi anzala ala abdihi al-kitab wa lam yaj'alluhu iwaja. I want you all to say Alhamdulillah for the Quran. Isn't it an amazing book? It has no deviations in it. It doesn't tell you choose deen or dunya. It's a balance of both. It's qayyiman. It keeps you straight, subhanAllah, in life. It's straight in and of itself, and it makes, us, it makes our affairs straight also. If you are going through problems in life, whether it's emotional problems, the Quran will make it straight for you. If you are someone who has family problems, Quran will make things straight for you if you seek guidance from it. If you are someone who's going through financial problems, someone who's going through political problems, economic problems, whatever it is, Allah will set you straight. This book will set you straight. And it's kind of like, you know, in our times where we're living in times of fitna, I want you to think of fitna like you're in a river where the stream is going opposite your direction, okay? It's, it's pushing you back. What do you need to hold on to to remain steadfast? It's the Quran. That Quran is the book that if you hold on to in this fitna of uh, our times, will inshallah protect you. Is it easy to hold on to that rope or no? No, it's going to require effort. And by the way, everyone else is going downstream. Everyone else is going downstream. So you need to make a choice. You need to make a choice to hold on to this book or to go downstream with everyone else. Not an easy thing. It came to warn us of an intense war. Do we see that effects of that war nowadays? The war between you know, truth and falsehood, the war between deen and dunya, the war between you know, Dajjal and his fitna and shaitan and his fitna, yes? And it gives good news to the believers who believe in the unseen. Those who do good deeds also, subhanAllah. Good deeds that are seen. They have the balance. They have belief in the unseen and they do good deeds of the seen. Ya'maluna salihat comes from the root word saluha, which means to fix. So they do, do deeds that fix problems on earth. That is the role of a Muslim. You're supposed to be someone who's connected spiritually and someone who is committed to doing good things for humanity. You will get the reward in Jannah. And then it warns the Christians who had these messed up thoughts. And then Allah tells us about zina and, and, and the fact that, yes, we're going to work in this dunya and make it a good place for us, but our ultimate reward will be in akhirah. This is only decoration. This is only temporary. We're here to plant our seeds. We're here to you know, give fruits to people so they can benefit from it. But we're going to go one day. And we want that sadaqah jariya to continue after we die. We need to put the seeds and let the ajr keep continuing after we die. And Allah is hinting to us that time is running out. Time is running out. We got to do something. We got to do something for this, for ourselves, for our akhirah. 
Okay, we can't just be immersed in this dunya. We can't just keep living the life of, you know, studying so that we can get a nice job, so we can buy a nice car, so we can buy a nice house, so we can get married, so we can go on honeymoon, so we can get kids, and we send kids to school, and we travel the world, and then we die. That, is that a meaningful life, guys? Eating, drinking, sleeping, dying? That's what animals do. Right? Animals eat, drink, sleep, and die. But human beings were created for a higher purpose. To make a difference in this world. To, to fix things on earth. To leave a positive impact in humanity. Okay? أَمْ حَسِبْتَ أَنَّ أَصْحَابَ الْكَهْفِ وَالرَّقِيمِ كَانُوا مِنْ آيَاتِنَا عَجَبًا Allah says they were a good, good company. So Allah is teaching us now lessons in this beautiful surah. What made this group of the youth special now? How do we connect this to the overall discussion? The youth of the cave saw the world with how many eyes? One or two? They were people of deen and dunya. Okay? They didn't give up. And they, were, they had good company with one another. They reminded each other of, of these good things. And by the way, the people of the cave, they also had three options. When the tyrant king told them to disbelieve, one option was to, to, join the, um, to join the crowd, right? What was the option? To join the crowd. That was option number one. To leave this dean thing, this, it's too much conflict, too much uh, you know, headache, let's just follow the crowd and become disbelievers. Option number two was let's do a terrorist attack and bomb this guy and, and kill everyone around us innocently, which is the violent, violent option. Option number three was let's go hide in a cave. So the hiding in the cave for the believers the, the youth of the cave was actually a retreat to plan. They had, they had a vision. And their vision was bigger than just sacrificing it like that. And so they're like, no, 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 we're not going to give up this deen easily. We're, we want to save our lives. The youth of the cave valued life. They wanted to stay alive so they could continue this vision. They had, they had hope. They were people who didn't want to give up easily. Okay? And so Allah calls them Warraqim, Ashab al Kahfi Warraqim. You know what this word Raqim means? People whose names are inscribed on rocks or stones. You know how like they say set in stone? So these this youth, Allah calls them Ashab al Kahfi Warraqim. What they did will stay recorded in the Quran, just like something is set in stone that can never be washed away. So they they left a legacy behind. They were people of vision. They were a youth with vision. And Allah em emphasizes on the word youth here. Okay? Which is a message for the youth in the audience and as well as the parents. You need to be people, uh, parents who encourage your youth to have big visions. And, and the youth need to be people who aim to have big visions. Aim to have your name inscribed on stone. Some of us, you know, we have our names, we do a little bit of things, just like, you know, when you write something in sand and then the beach comes, the, the, the water comes and it washes it away. Khalas, you're forgotten with time. What legacy do you leave behind? Ask yourself this question. What legacy would you like to leave behind you? What's something big you want to leave behind you? What's something special that Allah has blessed you with as a gift? Every single one of you, Allah has gifted you something special. What is that gift? You discover it and then ask yourself, how can I use this gift to benefit humanity? Not just Muslims. How do I benefit humanity at large? 
That's, that's the objective of people of visions, okay? And so, فَضَرَبْنَا عَلَىٰ آذَانِهِمْ فِي الْكَهْفِ سِنِيدَ عَدَدًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the youth of the cave, and, and these are like the, um, the highlights of this, this, uh, this story, okay? And the first part, he says, إِذْ أَوَلْ فِتْيَةُ إِلَىٰ الْكَهْفِ فَقَالُوا They made a dua, okay? So the first part is dua, they make a dua. رَبَّنَا آتِنَا مِن لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً وَهَيِّئْ لَنَا مِنْ أَمْرِنَا رَشَدًا First part is dua, second part is Allah made them sleep. فَضَرَبْنَا عَلَىٰ ذَانٍ فِي الْكَافِ سِنِينَ عَدَدًا Third part is Allah woke them, woke them up. After how many years? How many years? Yeah, 309 years. We don't know exactly what the nine is. We'll talk, maybe we'll talk about that, but it's not really important. But then Allah says, the word bilhaq means with purpose. Okay? So at the end of the story, Allah tells us what the whole point of this, surah, uh, this story was. They made dua, they went to sleep, they woke up, and now what's the purpose? Okay? That's like, these, are, these ayat are like a summary of the entire surah. And then when you go into the details, from ayah number 14 to 16, Allah talks about why they made dua. Look at the amazing structure of the surah, okay? And then when you go into ayah number 17 till 18, Allah talks about what happened when they slept. Remember the ayat about the sun and the turning around? Yes? 17 to 18. Then Allah talks about what happened when they woke up. And lastly, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this surah? What's the purpose of this story? إِذْ أَوَلْ فِتْيَةُ إِلَى what happens when young guys go out nowadays, by the way? <laughs> trouble, yeah? <laughs> Usually, there's trouble when young guys hang out. But these guys, they, they used to hang out in this cave, by the way. Allah called it Al-Kahf. It's awal fityatu ila Al-Kahf. They used to hang out in this cave. They knew it. Allah didn't say uh, some cave. He said the cave. It was like their hangout. And they were people who used to make dua. The youth used to make dua. Um, we also learn here that these youth weren't people who wanted to follow the crowd. They were people who, were, uh, who had a, mi a mission and a vision in their life. They wanted to do something different. They wanted to leave a positive impact. They wanted to be a change, be the change. They saw that their, their society was a society of kufr and shirk, and they wanted to do some goodness. They, wanted, they had a purpose in life and they wanted to struggle to achieve it. And by the way, when did they end up going to the cave? When did they end up going to the cave? When their life was at risk, right? Which means up until their life was at risk, they were willing to engage with society. They weren't disconnected from society. Don't understand from this cave story that we're supposed to all go and live in caves, by the way. Please. Don't say Brother Fahad gave a fatwa that we all need to move in caves. Okay? The cave here is a symbol of choice that the youth made. They decided to preserve their life. They decided to live for their vision. And they were willing to engage in society until the last breath, until they were basically nearly going to be killed. That's when they retreated. Okay? And they were, like I said, people who had a vision of dunya and akhirah. They were people who were connected with Allah and they wanted to serve humanity. They wanted to make a difference. And Allah talks about فَضَرَبْنَا عَلَىٰ آذَانِهِمْ You know how like when you make a kid sleep, your baby, you tap them on their, you know, 
Sometimes you tap them on the ear, Fadrabna. It's as if Allah is showing His love to these people, these youth, when He made them go to sleep. Like He lovingly tapped them to sleep. That's how special these youth were. And Allah says, Sinina adada. Do we know how many years, by the way? Did Allah say in this ayah, which, how many years? Allah is saying, don't, don't focus on the number of years, by the way. Focus on the fact that these were amazing youth. Don't, don't miss the point. And you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, they, they miss the whole point of this story. They start getting to discussion about how many years, was it 300 lunar years or leap years, or what's the whole story of the 300 or 309? And sometimes ask about the fact that were they three or five or seven? What about the dog? Was he a German shepherd or a Doberman? Was he black, brown, white? What about uh, the mo uh, when they woke up? Did they make a monument for them or a masjid? These are all discussions that happened in, this, in the surah, by the way. Right? Allah is teaching us through these uh, lessons that, you know what? You're missing the point. The point isn't how many they were. The point isn't where they came from. The point isn't where is this cave. The point is, these, you don't need to know the names of this youth. You just need to learn the lessons from these youth, that these are amazing people, that even if you don't know their names, I have preserved their name in history. By the way, did they have any Sharia degrees, or any like, knowledge about Quran, or any of that? Any ijazah in anything? No. But we're studying them today. Just a bunch of guys who believed in Allah. The only ijazah they had was, Allah is one. That's it. And so, when you understand this story with the right frame of mind, then the other stories make sense. If you don't, then you're going to miss the whole point of the other stories. If you don't get the point of the, if you start getting to these weird discussions about how many were they, dog color, all this, then even with the gardens, you'll be like, oh, so who was the garden owner? Why did he have two gardens? You know, why did Allah say one garden? You're going to be asking about Khudr. Who was Khudr? Was he a prophet? Who was he? Where was he? How did he, what did he look like? And then you're going to ask about Dhul Qarnayn also. And unfortunately, our, a lot of our Mufassirun, may Allah have mercy on them, yani, uh, a lot of them have gotten into these discussions and debates for no reason, you know? The whole point is that these are amazing people and we need to be inspired by them, okay? So uh, the lesson from the story of the youth of the cave. Did the youth of the cave have a vision? Yes, what was their vision to bring? People back to the belief in the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, okay? Was that a difficult vision, by the way? It was, it was very difficult because they're living in a, in a society where the king's official religion is shirk, right? And all of the masses are doing shirk. So did the, was the vision a far-fetched vision? Did it seem very far, far, far? Yes? And sometimes when something is very far to achieve, what happens to us? We get demotivated, right? We think, forget it, forget the whole thing. How is it ever going to happen? But Allah through, the, through this story is teaching us that don't worry about A to Z. How many letters between A and Z? 20? 26? 24? Allah is saying, you just take the first step with me. Just come from A to B at least. And from B to Z, let me take care of it. Ashab al-Kahf, what was in their hands? To go to the cave. That's all they could do at that point. They just went from A to B. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them sleep for 309 years. And then when they woke up, what did they see? 
Did their vision come true? Yes? People became people of Tawheed while they were sleeping, subhanAllah. So Allah is teaching us that, you know what, sometimes um, we get so um, obsessed with the vision itself, we forget driving along the road. We forget to take action. I'll give you a small story of a real person who, um, you know, is an inspiration to me. A lot of you might not know him. His name is Dr. Abdul Bari Khan. He was a man um, who was a normal doctor, right? I mean, he was one of the top heart surgeons in America. He, um, you know, was living the amazing lifestyle of, you know, having money and cars and houses and all these things. But he decided to make a, um, he decided that his life was very meaningless. It was a boring life. He wasn't doing anything exciting. He was just eating, drinking, sleeping, and one day he was going to die. He, did, he realized that he wasn't leaving a legacy behind. And so he decided one day that he wanted to do something amazing for poor people in Pakistan. And so he decided to build a, a hospital that was going to be world-class, 100% free of charge, in Karachi. And he had his own power plant. And this vision, within a period of four years, became a reality, okay? Uh, this hospital won many awards. The university, uh, Harvard University did a case study on this hospital. Uh, Allah made Bill Gates sign a check of $120 million for Dr. Abdul Bari, just to make his vision a reality. So you, you see the concept of just taking a step from A to B, and Allah takes care of B to Z? Yes? Amazing stuff. So drive along the road. Just get your intention right and take the actions and then Allah will inshallah leave the rest to Allah. Allah will make it happen for you inshallah. Okay? And Allah by the way, does He reward us based on the results? Or based on our efforts and our intentions? Efforts and intentions, results. Allah doesn't, doesn't reward us on the results. Okay? So Allah says, نَحْنُ نَقَصُّ عَلَيْكَ نَبَأَهُمْ بِالْحَقِّ just some other lessons because we're pretty much done here. وَرَبَطْنَا عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِهِمْ إِذْقَامُوا These were youth who were active. I really like this point here. That, you know, this concept of being active is repeated over and over again in this surah. We're living in times where everyone's so lazy, right? We're just sitting in front of the couch, checking our WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook, not doing anything productive. Whereas in this surah, the youth are active. They're mixed with society. They stand up in front of the king. They go to the cave, they take action. In the second surah also, you know, uh, or in the second story, the, the, the two garden story, the man is active, right? The friend, the, the friend who is giving advice to this guy who's deluded. He's active, he goes to his house and gives him advice. Similarly, Musa salam, is he active or no? Yes, he goes far away to learn from this man. Similarly, Dhul-Qarnayn, is he active? Yes, traveling always, east, west, looking to help people. So this concept of being active is repeated in the surah over again. And they say, They had a concern. These are our people. They didn't, you know, separate themselves from society. They said, These are our people. They had a concern for their community. Unfortunately, we're living in times where people are selfish, just thinking about themselves and their own families and how I can live a good life. I need a nice house. I need a nice car. I need to entertain myself. But we're learning from the youth of the cave that they didn't just live for themselves. They lived for the people around them, the community around them. And then Allah says about how when they, um, 
sought shelter in the cave. This is beautiful. You know, a, a cave is really uh, not the best symbol of comfort, is it? But Allah says that there was mercy in this cave. Some of us, we live in small, small apartments and we complain about how tight it is. Allah is telling us when Allah puts blessings, even your small apartments can become very wide. If Allah blesses it with His mercy and His rahmah. Yanshur lakum rabbukum rahmatih. Yanshur, He spreads His rahmah on you. You know, there's so many people who live in big palaces and big houses, but they don't have that happiness inside. So it's not about how big your house is or how big your car is. It's about how much Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses this space of yours, you know. And Allah says, لَكُم مِنْ أَمْرِكُمْ مِرْفَقَا Mirfaqa is actually a word used for pillows. So it's as if Allah told, uh, was telling us that the youth of the cave, this sleep was the best sleep of their life. How many of you have experienced like really, really good sleep? Yes? So the sleep they had, it wasn't like a, you know, they're waking up every five minutes and the rock, the stones were bothering them and there's snakes and cockroaches and scorpions. No, 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 no. This was the best sleep of their life. It was like amazing. Mirfaqa. Like the stones were a pillow. And Allah talks about how He bent the laws of nature for this youth. They were supposed to be disturbed by the sun rays, right? Allah is saying that, you know what, if you work for my deen, if you work, if you have a concern for me, if you are someone who has a vision, I will bend the laws of nature for you. You just take that first step to me. And Allah also took care of um, turning them, you know, side to side. You know how like when you sleep for a long time on one side, or when there's patients who are kind of... Um, you know, uh, they can't move. What do the nurses do every like couple of hours? They turn them around to avoid the bed sores. So who was turning them around? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَنُقَلِّبُهُمْ And we turn them around. Allah saying, I turn them around, subhanAllah. This is how much Allah loved this youth. And then Allah talks about the, the, the security. Allah even prov provided a security dog for them. And you know, interesting thing I came across in the research is the fact that Allah honored this dog by mentioning his name four times in the surah. The word kelp, I mean, it's mentioned four times in the surah. Why? Because this is the fruits of good company. Just by being around good youth, this dog was also, also honored. So imagine if we hang around good company, how will we get honored? Okay? So basically the dog had his paws out in front of the cave so that no, even if people tried to come into the cave, there was, um, you know, they would get scared and freak out and run away basically. Okay, so it's so a natural protection um, for the youth, for the special youth. And then Allah um, tells us about how when they woke up, these guys weren't broke, they had some money in their pockets. Unfortunately, a lot of you know, religious youth today, people who are active in da'wah, you know, they show up for dinner, but nothing in the pocket, you know? Expecting to, for someone else to take the bill. Um, and people who get in too much into deen, 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 they don't focus on dunya, guess what? They graduate, no job, no planning for their life, no planning for their career. You know, their only aspiration is to become like a khatib and uh, you know, a muaddin in the masjid or something. Can't get jobs. And unfortunately nowadays, you know who is studying Sharia for the most part? This is stuff that I'm not making up. This is a friend of mine who studied in Medina who's telling me that usually the, you know, the poorest of the people, 
when they have no hope to study medicine or accounting or finance or, or becoming a doctor, their last resort is, okay, let's send them to do study Sharia. Just so that they could get some pocket money and stuff. So, you know, instead of the cream of society going to study deen and to revive this deen, you know, the, the losers are going there, basically. And so when they come back, what happens to society? Can they add any value to society? Unfortunately not. So we need to be people who have... So these guys, mashallah, they took their wallets with them. They had, they had tawakkul, but they took their wallets with them. They didn't say, khalas, let's leave this dunya and just go in the cave, man. Allah will take care of us. No, 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 they had money with them. And Allah recorded this conversation in the Quran to teach us a lesson that these guys had money. Okay? Not only that, they told their buddy, go get us some good food. So mashallah, look at the balance of these youth. You know, they, they didn't say, go get us some dal roti and, you know, bajilla and stuff, like cheap food. No, 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 good food. You know? These guys knew how to eat, like they had a sense of taste. Not only that, they were experts in, in uh, high, like, you know, health, healthy food. So they said to their buddy, فَلْيَنظُرْ أَيُّهَا أَزْكَى طَعَامًا أَزْكَى basically means amazing food, really good food. It also means uh, pure food, which means healthy food. Okay, so they were aware about health. And فَلْيَأْتِكُمْ بِرِزْقٍ مِنْهِ You know what this means? Bring for us a small portion of it. Don't bring us the whole thing. You know how like when we eat, we over-order and there's a lot of leftover. And a lot of like nutritionists say that the key to having a healthy lifestyle is to eat a little bit. So mashallah, these guys knew their stuff. I mean, you could write a book on nutrition just from this ayah here. Okay? And the fact that Allah mentioned this word, وَلْيَتَلَطَّفْ here. And let him be soft and kind. Let him be soft and kind. And by the way, if you count the number of letters in the Quran, from beginning to end, from Surah Al-Fatiha all the way to Surah Al-Nas, the centermost letter in the Quran is the letter Fa and Waliyatalattaf. And this word Waliyatalattaf is the center word of the Quran. What does Waliyatalattaf mean? To be gentle, to be kind, to be loving, to be someone who's caring. So these youth were people who cared about others. They were kind. Unfortunately, we live in times where you know, people get religious and the more religious they get, the more angry they get. Right? The longer the beard gets, the angrier you look. And so, why did Allah make the center word of the Qur'an? We all need to learn to be Latif. And Latifa, inshallah. Right? Okay? So, tawakkul plus planning. Tawakkul doesn't just mean, Allah, let's go in the cave and khalas. No, no, there was planning. They told him to be careful when he came out, okay, so that no one would catch him. And so um, I just want to fast forward to the last part of this. Change doesn't happen overnight. How many years did they sleep? 300. It took 309 years for that city to become Muslim again. Okay? Sometimes, you know, we try, try, try to find shortcuts in life. And, and shortcuts don't really uh, have that impact. So if you are someone of a vision, then you got to be patient. you got to learn patience from these, this youth. They were people of patience. And so what made them legendary? That's the title of our talk today. What made this youth legendary? The fact that they had, they realized what their purpose is in life, right? They had a purpose in life. They were people who had a vision in life. They wanted to live 
with a, a meaningful life. They didn't just want to live to eat, drink, party, and entertain themselves and die. Also, they were committed. They had a plan. They wanted to live and, and do something about their life. And the fact that they were active. Okay? So that's the story of the youth of the cave. Now, in summary, um, I also want to tell you a little bit about uh, how, you know, this, uh, these four stories are actually, in a way, uh, a, a description of our history as Muslims. Okay? We are living in times today where is Islam at the top or at the bottom? Top or bottom? How many of you think we are at the top? How many of you think we're at the bottom? How many of you think we're going towards the top? Okay, good, mashallah. So we're inshallah going towards the top. So it's, it's as if we are in the stage of the youth of the cave, right? We're like that small minority that's sitting in the cultural hall, trying to study the book of Allah, trying to get closer to Allah. Whereas the most people are doing what? F1. I'm not saying going to F1 is haram, okay? Don't misquote me here. But I'm just saying most people are going to watch a pit bull tonight, right? Uh, not that I know who he is, okay? But, okay. So, uh, the fitna of deen, we're living in times where the fitna of deen, right? Everyone around us is kind of like against this deen, they don't care about this deen, but we are trying to stay in this cave. So this hall is actually our cave today. Think about this hall as a cave, that where we gather together to get that boost so inshallah we could go out and get some fuel to face society. And then next Friday, you're gonna read this surah and you're gonna be refueled inshallah. You're going to go back in your cave every Friday now and get that Iman boost again. And then, you know, um, what happens when people go into caves? What's happening outside in society? People are becoming materialistic, aren't they? And when people become materialistic, all they think about is money and, you know, entertainment and all these things. The, second, the, the third sto story tells us how difficulties happen in Muslims' times, right? Remember how like the boat got messed up in Musa's story? Yes? What did Musa say? How come you, you messed up this boat? How come that boy got killed? Is that happening in the Muslim world today? Yes? Innocent people being killed, families being destroyed, you know, mothers being widowed, um, you know, people being tested with their deen and, and Burma and Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen and so many places in the world, right? Muslims are being persecuted. And, you know, everyone's saying, why is this happening to us? Why is this happening to Islam? Where is Allah? The materialist people are saying this. But what would the believers see in all of this? We will see Allah's wisdom in this. Just like Khidr told Musa, be patient. Did Musa have patience? No, he didn't, right? The message of that story was, Allah has a wise plan in place, be patient. So yes, we see all these troubles, we see people crying and we feel sad for them, we make dua for them and we feel, uh, you know, uh, kind of terrible deep inside, but in all of these problems, in all this conflict, there is a wisdom and Allah is planning something amazing for us. And the result of the plan is gonna be when this Ummah becomes like Dhul Qarnayn one day. According to the promise of the Prophet ﷺ was that this Ummah will, I repeat, this Ummah will become the leaders of, of, the, of humanity one day. And the times will come where the Khilafah will come back like it is the Khilafah ala minhaj al-Nubuwa, just like the Khilafah during the time of the Prophet 
And people will see Islam as the most amazing religion. And there will be justice on earth and peace and love and mercy. And people will want to become Muslim. They'll be knocking on our doors and saying, can I become a Muslim? Can I become a Muslim? We don't have to do da'wah anymore. People will, want, people will be calling us. You know how like um, Superman? What was his job? He used to fly around saving people, right? Dhul-Qarnayn was like Superman. But he was a real character, right? He was flying left, right, in the east, west, trying to help people, spread justice. Um, you know, the West didn't have a real character, so they came up with Superman, but we have Dhul Qarnayn as an example in the Quran for us. And Dhul Qarnayn is a symbol for every single one of us of hope in the future that we will, inshallah, one day be an Ummah that will be like Dhul Qarnayn. An Ummah that will, will spread peace on earth and spread justice on earth. And people will be calling us, just like people would call Yajuj and Majuj to build a, you know, a, a dam for them. People will be calling us one day and saying, Hey Muslims, can you please uh, you know, help us out? We have financial problems, we have issues with our society, with our families, can you please help us out? And we will basically be sending our armies, not to fight and kill them, but to save them from oppression and to spread justice. SubhanAllah. That's, that's basically a portrayal of uh, the future of the, the youth of the, or the, the story itself. And so every time you read this, Surah every Friday, brothers and sisters, this, this surah is giving us hope. It's giving us hope that inshallah, if we are people who live our lives like the youth of the cave, inshallah at the end, inshallah we will be people who will contribute towards the, the ummah at large by being like Dhul Qarnayn. I'd like to just conclude by reminding you all that there's uh, outside, there's going to be sign up forms for a workshop that I conduct called the Discovery or Vision, Discovery or Vision Workshop. It's a two-day workshop uh, where we talk about vision and how to have a purpose in life and planning your life in more detail. Right? It's two days where we sit in a cave. It's not really a cave. It's going to be like a, you know, we book a hall in, in, in one of the hotels. But the idea is you leave the dunya, come in the cave with us, take two days off from your life, from your distraction, from the material world out there, and think about your life. Think about what you want to do in life. Think about how you can make a difference. Think about organizing your life and prioritization and time management and balancing roles. We're going to be talking about all of this stuff. So inshallah, I highly, highly recommend you all to inshallah sign up. Uh, send your kids, if your parents, and if your parents yourselves, trust me, all of us need help in this, okay? Uh, so two days, we, we didn't make it consecutive this time, so there's going to be a Saturday, May 9th, and then the next Saturday, May 16th. So you have time in, in between to absorb and digest what you learn, inshallah. And the last message I want to leave with you all is that every single one of you, there is a legend in you. The story of the youth of the cave is, is your story. It's my story. And it's about time that that legend comes out, inshallah, and makes a difference, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan, subhanakallah, bihamdik, nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. أستغفرك ما أتوب إليك السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته with their generous support. We thank the Ministry of Culture for allowing us to host this life-changing event in their beautiful auditorium.
I would also like to extend my sincere appreciation and congratulate all the organizers and volunteers who worked very hard to make this event possible. Inshallah, we hope History to see you yeah. and your continuous enthusiasm and commitment to serve this ummah and deen for all the years to come, inshallah. I would like to remind you all that Brother Fad Sarwani will be conducting a two-day intense course on Discovery or Vision. For more details, please contact our volunteers. Uh, collect your free brochures on the way out. Thank you water. so much. Yeah. Where are we going to be praying?